Well, a man dialed a wrong number and got the following recording. I am not available right now, but thank you for caring enough to call. I am making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of the changes. Took a second. Took you a second. The truth is that change is hard, isn't it? No matter how old we are, change is difficult. One clinical psychologist explained how our brains work when we change this way. Your brain is made up of approximately 100 billion neurons. That's brain cells. These neurons store and transmit more information than you can ever imagine. Every time you learn a new word, a new piece of information, or an activity, these neurons change their connections with other neurons. For example, when you learn to ride a bike, you learn new information about the bike and how it works. You learn the physical movements used to make it go and make it stop. You then learn how to read your environment to predict where to and when to ride. All these separate pieces of information activate different parts of the brain and the neurons in that area. Once the pattern of activity has been activated a few times, new connections between those areas and their neurons are made. A new pathway is created. As you repeat the process over and over, this, the pathway gets stronger. Your brain learns exactly what it needs to do to keep you safe while riding. It learns it so well that after a while you don't even need to concentrate while riding, although you really should. The pathway just activates and plays out all the parts necessary for the act without your conscious control. This author, she gives all of this sciencey information that we can, so that we can see our brain always tries to take the path of least resistance. Our brains like to stay the same all the time. See, we know this is true. This is why change is so difficult. Uh, not long ago, I heard on NPR, they were talking about finding new music, and, and they said that the magic number for people to stop discovering new bands is about age 30. Once you get to age 30, generally speaking, you stop trying to discover new music. You stop trying to look for new bands or new musicians. Finding new bands is rewarding, but it's not easy. So often, what do we do? We stick with what we know. We have our routines, our favorite restaurants, and our favorite vacation spots. Now, some people will say, well, we like what we like, and that's true. But there's always so much more to see and experience. See, we feel uncomfortable when we're faced with learning something new or going somewhere different. Our brain is working against us. Maybe you've been in this experience where, where you are in a group of people and you're trying to decide where to eat. And someone or the group decides to go to a restaurant that you're not familiar with. Maybe it's a different uh, a type of food that you're not a fan of. And so uh, uh, your brain, your, your entire being wants to go to Chick-fil-A because you know what Chick-fil-A makes, right? They're consistent. And so as you get outvoted, you end up going with the group to a restaurant that you're not familiar with. And you sit there and your palms are sweaty. You're squirming in your seat. You're uncomfortable. You ever thought, why? Because your brain is telling you, run, go to where is comfortable, go to what you know. Our brains don't like change. And this is why we, as we age, change is harder. A child, those ones that you just saw making the horse's noise when they're running across, it's a beautiful sound. I love it every Sunday. 
those kids, you can go up there and you can say, hey, our service, our structure today has changed, and they'll think nothing of it, right? It's a lot harder for us. Children, their brains, they're eager to learn, they're eager to change, they're eager to experience something new and different. But as we age, new things are scary to our brains, so we often avoid them. But have you ever noticed, and some of you are like this, that those couples that get into their 70s or 80s and they're traveling the world, they're eating different kinds of foods every day, they're taking pictures on a different beach every day, have you ever noticed that something's different about them? They're odd because they think more like children than they do like a normal person in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. Why? Because it's harder to change and we don't expect that of ourselves. We get set in our ways. We, we decide this is what I want to do. This is what I like. This is where I want to go. This is who I spend time with. And it's difficult to change. See, this doesn't just apply for food and travel. This applies to every aspect of our life. There, there are plenty of stories of people who've converted to the faith in their old age. We, we know those. But those examples pale in comparison to the number of people. Many of us are of this who have converted to the faith in our younger age. Why? The longer we live, the more rooted we are in something. The harder it is to convince us that we're wrong about something, too. See, this chapter, Genesis 35, if you want to summarize the entire chapter, the best way to summarize it is change. Change. Jacob had uh, uh, to go through a great deal to get to this point. His brain would have said, no, stick with what you know. Stay here. But yet, as we see, he didn't. We see a man who's done terrible things make a change. A change in his life that most of us, if we would have just read to this point in the story, would have never imagined. Not Jacob. It's a bad dude. Not this guy. See, as we've studied through Genesis, we've... 34 chapters already, it's been a wild ride. See, the beauty of going through a book like this, to, to taking a book and starting in verse 1 and going through it verse by verse or idea by idea, is that we see things that we may have missed otherwise. A few weeks ago, someone came up to me after the service and said that I had said something that caused them to see something or to think something that they have not really noticed before. The connection's there. This is what this kind of preaching does. And it's what your kind of listening takes, too. It takes work. It takes devotion to reading the word. You grow, you mature, you understand God's plans that you hadn't thought possible before because you're analyzing what you're hearing and what you're seeing. And a book like Genesis demands this kind of study. The best analogy I can give as we go through this, this passage is that if you've missed parts of this series... Go back and re-listen to it in the same way that if you stepped out of a movie for 10 or 15 minutes and walk back in, you're going to miss a lot. The plot won't make sense anymore. You're, you're filling in gaps with what you think you know. And so this is why, why studying the book, uh, studying a book of the Bible verse by verse or going idea by idea from verse 1 is so vitally important. So here's what I want you to do. Think back to Genesis 33. And think back to what God told Jacob to do. What did God tell Jacob to do? He said to go 
to Bethel. Now, if we stop there, we'd say, okay, well, Jacob goes back to Bethel, right? That's how the story ends. But we know that's not what happened. Jacob decided to stop short in Shechem. And because he didn't fully obey, he put his entire family in jeopardy. And we saw in chapter 34 the effects of a bad decision. Now, pausing for a second, when we look at our own lives, when we examine the history of the decisions that we've made, um, we can often find things that caused us problems. Maybe we could be in a relationship that goes against the biblical standard. Maybe it could be a move or a job that was taken and our spouse wasn't fully on board with it. See, the list is incredibly long of those decisions that we've made in our lives that we can pinpoint and say it was here, here, and here that caused this to happen. Now, I want to be careful because I've heard people say this. I've heard teachers say these kind of things that when you obey God, good things happen. When you don't obey God, bad things happen. I've heard that. You, you probably have as well. They, they make Genesis, they make the entire Bible into a, a, a morality tale. That do this and then this. Or do this and then this. And that's one, not the point of scripture. And two, that's missing the main idea of what the entire book is teaching us. So why is God telling him to do things? Is God just trying to say, well, Jacob, if you behave, if you do the right things, then I will reward you? Well, we know that's not true. We, we know that there are a lot of bad people who are successful, people who live the good life, people who've made a living off of hurting and abusing people. But we also know that sin has consequences. We may not feel it right now or even in this life, but the consequence of our disobedience will be dealt with. Now, with that said... Sin in our lives will often, not always, but often bring consequences here and now. Jacob was told to do something and he didn't do it. And the events of chapter 34 were a direct cause or a result of his disobedience in chapter 34. And now in chapter 35, God reminds Jacob of what he plans to do. And we see Jacob behaving differently. I want to say this again. Obedience to God's commands is not a guarantee of worldly success. I don't want you leaving here ever thinking, well, if I just obey God, my life will be better. It's not true at all. It's one, it's not found in scripture. Two, it actually goes against everything that we see in the history of the church and in scripture. That we often know, or we know that, that often those who follow Christ actually have a very difficult life. Harder existence. So when you hear the words victory or success or the good life, we need to be clear what we mean. I absolutely believe that those who are found in Christ, these things do belong to us. I believe that Christians are heirs to the promise that we're reading about in Genesis. This is a big deal. This is not just for Jewish people. This is not just for the Israelites. This is not just for the ancients. This is for us. I believe that. And while that absolutely changes the way that we live and we think, it does not mean that our lives will be better here and now. We're free from the guilt of sin that hangs over all of us. And we are so eternally grateful for that. That we know that, that, the, that the guilt stain that we had as Christians has been washed away. We've been made clean. 
but we still make bad choices, don't we? We still sin. We still do things that causes discomfort and disruption in our lives and the lives of others. See, victory, success, the good life are all given to us through Christ. Christ has defeated every sin, but we still sin, so the promise must be bigger than here and now. Now, I share this with you because the Old Testament narratives are often misused. Where the focus becomes do better and get rewarded. This is how I think it's natural to view the Bible this way because that's how we're taught in everything else. Your parents teach you that? Behave and I'll give you a reward. Clean your room, I'll give you your allowance. Cut the grass, we'll go get ice cream, right? Do good, get rewarded. But the Bible standard's a little different. Actually, a lot different. The Bible over and over and over shows us that we are not good. That we can't be good enough. We, we cannot do enough good to earn whatever it is that we're trying to earn. We cannot do it. And this is why Genesis keeps over and over pointing us all of the sins of these people in Genesis, all of these egregious, horrific sins, they're all pointing us to the fact that we are the same type of people as them. Lost. Helpless and hopeless. Now with that said, let's look at the text. Our first point comes from verses 1 through 8. And this is where we see God's instruction. In verse 1, Jacob has to be reminded to return to Bethel. If you remember uh, a few chapters earlier, um, Jacob stopped in Shechem. Disaster happened. Jacob is still angry about what happened to Dinah. Rightfully so. And we can picture him sitting in his tent. He, he's sitting there with his, his head in his hands, and he's, he's at the bottom right now. He, he re remembers all of those things that he has done and said. He, he thinks back to all of those things that he did that, that he knows are wrong. And he sees that he didn't obey God. And because of that, his daughter is abused. And then God repeats himself to Jacob. God shouldn't have to repeat himself, should he? One of the things as a parent that I found to be the most frustrating thing and most tiring thing is having to repeat myself. Over and over and over and over and over and over. I just told you 10 minutes ago to do this. And I leave and come back 20 minutes later. I just told you to do this. It's exhausting. See, God shouldn't have to do this. We shouldn't have to do this to our kids, but infinitely more, God should not have to do this to us. Him saying it one time is enough for all of us to obey, but human nature, our own nature, tells us that we don't listen very well. God told Jacob to go to Bethel. Jacob didn't trust him. Jacob did his own thing, and the family suffered. The commands that God gives are always given for a reason. We may not understand it. We may not even agree with it. We, we may not comprehend it. But God doesn't waste words. So anything that he tells us to do is for our own good. None of the people that we've seen so far in Genesis understand this. And frankly, we don't either. God's commands are not arbitrary. They are for our good as we glorify him. And God tells Jacob to do four things. He says, arise, go, dwell, make. In other words, get up, Jacob, and get out of here. 
Worship me correctly. Do what I said. And in verse 2, we see a change of tone for Jacob. He obeys and he tells his family. He doesn't ask. He doesn't, if you remember when he was trying to figure out what to do, he went and asked Rachel and Leah, what should we leave? I don't know. God said we should, but I don't know. Now he goes in and says, this is what we're doing. It's not a discussion. It's not a question. He says this. Do, we are leaving, and here is what we're going to do. We're going to obey God. Now, again, as a parent, and all of us are either parents or we've had parents, we've all heard this or said this after the fact. Aren't you glad that you obeyed? Now, if you would have just done what I asked you, things would have been much easier. Every day I say that. We've all said that. Well, Jacob goes, and he finally, the light bulb turns on, and he goes in and tells his family to do three things. He says, we're going to put away the foreign gods, purify ourselves, and we're going to change our garments. First thing he says to do is to get rid of idols. If Jacob's truly repentant, and we believe that he is, this is the first step. Now, the Ten Commandments have not been written yet. They've not been given yet. But it's not an accident that the first two commandments deal with who God is, and our worship towards him. Those are the two most important things. Everything else stems from that. When we fully understand who God is, and we understand that God has given us a standard by which we are to worship him, the rest of scripture makes sense. And the rest of what he does makes sense. So then the question comes is, where do these idols come from? Jacob's life has been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Abraham's as well. This up and down, obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience, back and forth, back and forth. And so there are two options to where these idols came from. One, they could have just been gathered when they took them from the Shechemites. Or it could have been that the family fell back into pagan idol worship. Either way, these things were bad. They didn't belong. And so Jacob says, we got to get rid of them. Then he tells his family to purify themselves and to change their garments. This is a, a cultural practice that, that we really don't do today, the ceremonial cleaning and all of that stuff. We don't do that. Um, but there are people who still do that. They avoid certain fabrics or certain animals based on the Old Testament standards that, that they just don't touch because they're unclean. Now, all that this means is that there was a change that happened and Jacob was now leading his family. Did you notice something? That when all of those bad things have happened in previous chapters, Jacob was kind of silent. He kind of stood to the side. He was like his grandfather Abraham. Bad things were happening. He may have participated or he just may have turned his back. But he didn't say stop. He didn't say this isn't right. And now he is. He's saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get rid of all of these things. We're going to purify ourselves before God. One way to think about this, if you're wondering why purification, why changing clothes, why doing all of this stuff. I want you to go home today or tomorrow and mow your grass. Get real sweaty. Take your clothes off. Go and take a shower and go and put those dirty clothes back on. Your shower that you just took is completely pointless at that point, right? No, you put on 
clean clothes when you're clean. See, we don't change our clothes. We don't do the ceremonial practice, but we do something. We do baptism to signify something that's happened, an outward expression of an inward reality. Jesus says in John 3, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now some would say, well, that requires baptism for salvation. Well, no, Jesus was referring to Ezekiel 36 where it says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all uncleanness. When we are transformed by God... We are changed on the inside and on the outside. When we follow our profession of faith with baptism, we are showing that we're clean, we're cleansed, washed, made new. The water is from a tap or from a lake or from a pool or from the ocean, wherever it is that we do baptism. There's nothing magical in those waters, but it's a sign that an inward change has happened. Jacob ordering his family to change their garments had no special power either. It was a way for them to show that they had truly been changed. And Jacob recognizes this in verse 3 when he says that God had answered him in his time of distress. See, one of the key indicators of a changed life, of someone who is truly a follower of Christ, is by how they recognize who God is. See, when we examine ourselves in light of the holiness of God, when someone can accurately explain that to say, God is good, I am not. That that God's righteousness compared to my own righteousness, there's not even a comparison happening there. When someone can explain that, that is a sign of someone who is a true follower of Christ. Jacob, through his actions and his words, shows that at least in some part he gets this, he understands this. And this provokes him to action. In verse 4, Jacob buries the gods, little g, and the rings in their ears. Again, these things could have been taken from the Shechemites, or it could have been some garment or, or, or part of a religious ritual that they did during their pagan times. Either way, Jacob needs to get rid of them. And so he buries them under a tree. It's a change. This signifies a change in Jacob. They are leaving their past behind them. He's met God, and he's been changed by him. And then in verse 6, Jacob came to Luz, another name for Bethel, which is where he should have been all along. All of this leading up to where we're at now in Genesis 35, all was a result of Jacob's disobedience. He stopped just a few miles short. He should have kept going, and he chose for some reason not to do that. Jacob knows what's happened to Dinah, and he knows that it was due to his disobedience, so he goes to Bethel without groaning. 
He shows the change in his life by building an altar. So that's what God's instruction and Jacob follows. And in verses 9 through 15, we see God's covenant. In verse 9, God appeared uh, and blessed Jacob. And in verse 10, two names are changed. Luz or Luz becomes Bethel and Jacob becomes Israel. The best way to describe what's happening in this, again, is change. Is that a new name signifies a new person. Dirty clothes are exchanged for clean ones. Idols are exchanged for a relationship with the one true God. And now names are changed. Why? Well, we don't really do this, but in ancient cultures, names had meaning. Names had uh, value and a description, as we see with Benjamin. And so you would take your old name, and when you came to know the one true God, you would be given a new name. We saw it with Abraham becoming Abraham, and now Jacob becoming Israel. It's really not that different from what we see in modern-day Islam, where when someone converts to the, the Muslim faith, they change their name. It signifies that they are not the same person as they were before. So while we don't change our name, we do become followers of Christ. And because of that, we are not the same person. Think of what happens when we are converted. All of the things happen after, right? And there's a bunch. And you may not consider this, but after our conversion, we are baptized. We join a church. We devote ourselves to the gathering each week. We spend time with one another. We sacrifice for one another. We give to the work of ministry. And we give our time in discipleship. We didn't do that before, did we? Everything about us when we come to know Christ is different. We, we still have the same body. We still have the same name. We still have the same voice. We still like the same food. But the reality is we are a new creation. You are not the same person that you were before you knew Christ. You've been changed. You're different. To summarize, we are different. Isn't that why Jacob did all of these things? Didn't he want to show his family and those around him that he is not the same person? I'm Israel now. God has called me Israel. Then in verse 11, God talks to Jacob again and says, I am, the all, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Now your mind should immediately go back to Genesis 1. God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. He, he said the same thing for Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, which, which signifies there's going to be a whole lot of people coming from this line, right? This is a reminder of the covenant that God made with Abraham, and he upholds it with his descendants. Well, then the narrative now moves to Rachel's death in verses 16 through 21. We see in these verses that Rachel was dying and she knew it. We can imagine this is her second child and, and we can imagine the joy. If you remember, Rachel was Jacob's chosen bride. That he worked for seven years and then there's Leah. And then he had to work another seven years in order to have Rachel. The one that he really wanted. The one that he was closest to. And we know that Rachel couldn't provide a child for quite a long time. Now this one, Benjamin, was special. Because it was a second child. But 
this child would be born in the promised land. This child would be born in Bethel. This child has a, a, a special uh, uh, aura or mystique about him because of where he was born. Now you may be wondering this in all of this, why if God told them to go to Bethel, why did they leave? Because this is what it says they're doing. They're leaving. No definitive answer, but it was probably not a violation of God's command because we would have seen that stated. In other words, they stayed as long as God told them to stay. So Rachel goes into labor with another son, and she dies in childbirth. Now, I would, just as a aside, if a mother decides to name her child something, it's probably not the best thing for the father to immediately say, nope, that's not what we're naming him, I'm giving him a different name. But again, names had meaning and purpose and value, and so... She named him Ben-Ani, or Oni, son of my sorrow. Jacob decides on a different name, Ben-Jamin, or Ben-Jamin, son of the right. Now, if you remember, in royal families, the most important person, and we see this with, in the Trinity, Jesus sits down at the Father's right hand. And so he's saying that this Benjamin is special to me. This is my favored son. Now, remember back to Genesis 30, Rachel said this, give me children or I shall die. Now, she had no idea that not much longer after she said that, that she would be in labor and it would happen to her. She made having children an idol. In her mind, she existed in order to have children. Now, the birth of her child would kill her. And Jacob lived with sorrow for the rest of his life. He was tricked into marrying Leah when he really wanted Rachel. She was his favored bride. Now I must believe that he carried a lot of guilt with him. And every day was a reminder that his family was in shambles and now his wife was gone. And this leads us to the final section of our passage this morning. The effect of sin, verses 22 through 29. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, meaning that sin is the reason that we all die. Now, I'm not talking about you going out and sinning and then immediately dying because of that individual sin. I'm not speaking about that. But rather, because sin exists, death is the natural result of that. Death exists because sin exists. Rachel died because of sin, just like you and I will one day die, and it will all be a result of sin in the world. And Jacob is still dealing with this. He's, he's still dealing with the abuse of Dinah, and then his wife dies. So he's watching his daughter, or he hears about his daughter being abused. And then his wife dies. The story is not over yet. And it would be nice, wouldn't it, for them to have some quiet, for them to have some peace. We've got three kids, and it is so nice when it's quiet. Sometimes, because you know that if it's really quiet, something bad's happening. But, but it's nice when the kids are kind of doing their own thing. Nobody's fighting, nobody's screaming, things aren't being broken. It's relaxing. We would hope the same thing for Jacob, but that's not what's 
happening here. Chapter 35 was rolling great, right? That Jacob is now uh, obeying God. He's going where God told him to go. He seems to be doing the right thing. His wife dies, which is natural. And then we come to the story of Bilhah. Bilhah was considered a close relative. She wasn't a, a blood relative, but she was considered as one. She was Jacob's concubine. Again, this is not a, an approval of what's happening. Jacob had four children with four different women. That's not okay. That's never been approved, right? This is a statement of fact. Reuben, one of his sons, abused his authority to get what he wanted from Bilhah. As we know, these kind of assaults and abuses are, are, are less physical and far more about power. Reuben wanted to exert his power to be his father's replacement. Ever wonder where Shakespeare gets his stories? It's from the Bible. This is nothing new. There is nothing new under the sun. This has been happening for a long, long time. Reuben wanted to usurp his father's authority, and he could do that by sleeping with Bilhah. Adding to the drama, it wouldn't be that far-fetched to think that Leah was probably involved in this. It was Reuben who gathered the mandrakes in chapter 30 for Leah, so he already, he already has a deceitful relationship with her. Bilhah wasn't Leah's sister, but she was the maidservant of Rachel. Bilhah played a surrogate role for Rachel, and so the command to not sleep with uh, one's aunt could be extended to one's servant because they were kind of one and the same. It was a motherly position. Now, this would not be illegal today or even then, but it would be weird and morally repugnant still. Jacob was indifferent about what happened to Dinah in chapter 34. This is kind of the story of Jacob, indifference. Now, could this have, among other things, contributed to his children's attitude toward fellow image bearers? That the fact that, that, that he kind of didn't get angry until the very end? And all of the things that Jacob has done to hurt and abuse people, his children were either the products of that or they were watching him do this. Where do children learn from? They learn from their parents. Parents, when we do bad things, our kids learn. They will follow our lead for good or bad. When we allow others to be hurt or we don't make things right in our lives, we can't expect our children to behave differently. But Reuben didn't gain the power that he sought. In fact, Jacob was angry with Reuben until the day that he died. This was a dysfunctional family. See, it points us to something else. Not only did Jacob provide a bad example to his own children, he became angry when they acted just like him. In my own life, my own sins are seen most in what I get angry with my children. You're being mean to someone. And I get angry at that. Well, wait, have I not done the same? You were rude to that person. Wait, have I not done the same? All of those things that I get irritated with my own kids about and the, that I get angry uh, uh, when my kids do something wrong, the, the reality is I've done the same things. I'm guilty of all the same crimes that they are. Jacob gets angry. He gets angry at what he's seeing. No. Always thinking in Scripture in terms of Viewing it through the lens of the gospel. And the gospel tells us 
that the gospel of Christ says that God forgives sinful people who do sinful things. It's the simplest story that I can give you. God forgives bad people. And if I've learned anything about Jacob's life, it's been that I have the same need for repentance as he does or did. And it is only by God's grace that I don't do the same things that he did because I am just as capable. Yes, sin still impacts our lives. And we can wreck our lives and the lives of others in many different ways, but the gospel is the solution. See, trusting in Jesus will not get rid of earthly consequences. We've seen this. Jacob put his hope in the promises of God, and there were still bad things that came. Trusting in Jesus won't rid ourselves of those consequences, but it does give us hope. It does give us something to cling to. You say, what is that? Same message as we've heard every week. That God is still faithful, even when we're not. Over and over and over, we see this being played out. Has the covenant been broken? No. Jacob tried. Jacob tried to, to, to wrestle out of the, the grip of God. Couldn't do it. It does give us hope that our standing with God is not dependent on how good we can be. Sin will often gain the upper hand, but our hope is that the God who made the covenant with Abraham and kept it with Isaac and Jacob is the same God who loves us and keeps us secure today. This story is about change. Jacob goes through changes. Some pretty drastic changes, his family changes. But do you notice that throughout this entire story, God hasn't changed at all? Nothing in here in the entire book of Genesis or the entire Bible would show you that God has changed. God has remained faithful and steadfast since the very beginning. In fact, before the foundation of the universe, God has been faithful. Even when we're not. And this is the truth of the gospel. That, that God stays faithful when we're not. Which means that our future, our hope, is not dependent on us. It can't be. It's God's faithfulness that provides us hope and security. Would you pray with me?